Hello, this is the UCLA Housing Voice Podcast. I'm Shane Phillips. A quick note on the UCLA Lake Arrowhead Symposium that I mentioned at the top of last episode. As I'm recording this, we've only got two more tickets available through the website. So by the time you hear this, we are probably sold out. We're really looking forward to convening this event, especially with its focus on housing this year. And for those of you who are going, we will see you next month. This week on the podcast, we are joined by Professor Ingrid Gould-Ellen of NYU, and we're talking about recent research by her and her colleagues on the impacts of New York City's Universal Access to Council program, a city effort to guarantee legal representation to poor tenants in the city who face eviction. In most cities, most landlords have lawyers to represent them in eviction court, and most tenants do not. The disparity is really striking, and Right to Counsel is intended to level the playing field, at least somewhat, and to hopefully reduce both evictions and eviction filings. New York City was the first big U.S. city to implement a Right to Counsel program, and fortunately for us, they rolled out the program in a way that made it fairly easy to research and determine its impacts. We'll be talking about what Ingrid and her colleagues found, and some of the other programs and support that might be needed to get the most out of universal access to counsel. The Housing Voice podcast is a production of the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies, and we receive production support from Claudia Bustamante, Olivia Arena, and Jason Sutasha. Feedback or show ideas can go to me at shanephillips at ucla.edu, and you can give the show a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Now let's talk to Professor Gould-Ellen. Ingrid Gould-Ellen is Professor of Urban Policy and Planning with the NYU Wagner Graduate School of Public Service and Faculty Director of the NYU Furman Center for Real Estate and Urban Policy. And we're excited to have her here talking with us about a recent article in Housing Policy Debate. That article is co-authored by Kathy O'Regan, Sophia House, and Ryan Brenner, and it is titled, Do Lawyers Matter? Early Evidence on Eviction Patterns After the Rollout of Universal Access to Counsel in New York City. Do lawyers matter is a question we have all wondered at one time or another or many times, and so we are looking forward to getting some answers here. Ingrid, welcome to the Housing Voice podcast. Thanks. Happy to be here. And we have Mike Lenz as our co-host. He is back from sabbatical. He is in Los Angeles. He is so fresh and ready to go. (laughs) Welcome back, Mike. Thank you, Shane. I'm extremely fresh. Uh, Yeah, I am extremely happy to be, you know, doing this podcast today in particular. Uh, Ingrid has as much to do with the fact that I am able to sit around and, and have these kinds of fun discussions as anybody. And also the fact that I'm somebody coming back from a very beautiful, wonderful sabbatical as a, as a you know, comfortable academic. Um, I, I owe a lot to, to Ingrid and of course, one of our prior guests, uh, Kathy O'Regan, who's also a co-author on this paper as the, the greatest mentors that anybody could have. So this is a, this is a big pleasure today. Well, pleasure to have you as a student, Mike. So, <laughs> for life. As always, we start out by asking our guests for a tour. You are not our first guest from New York. Kathy O'Regan is one. We've had a few others as well. Mike is very familiar with New York. So, let us know if you've got any good off the beaten path 
sites or experiences uh, you'd like to recommend to people, or if there's somewhere you know outside of New York City you want to share with us? Yeah, um, well, such a good question, and I feel like this is a challenge. I, I'm not sure I'm going to go that far off the beaten path, though, but um, we just had our annual Furman Center retreat at Governor's Island, and I had actually never been there, and it, it's really fantastic. It, it's like a 170-acre island, less than a kilometer away from Manhattan, so it's a very, very quick boat trip, very trip to get over there. It was originally used as a fort for um, to protect the um, New York Harbor after, after the Revolutionary War, and it was later as sort of an, an army and a, a Coast Guard um, residential base. And now it's basically a year-round park with overnight glamping sites and parkland <laughs> and concerts, urban farming, art exhibits, events, um, and and actually some potential housing, which is something else. But so I would say that I would say. Again, not not such a hidden gem, but Prospect Park, I will say before 9 a.m., if you love dogs, it's just a giant dog party. So dogs can go off leash. So that's a great place. And then now this is all park. So um, the main reading room at the New York Public Library is just the most beautiful public space I think I've ever been in. It's just gorgeous. And the librarians are amazing, I have to say, too. And then um, I feel like I should say a museum, the Tenement Museum. So that's sort of fitting for us, which is an incredible museum on the Lower East Side that basically it's housed in two restored tenement buildings. And um, it basically you can go in and see sort of recreated rooms that show you the, the living conditions of, of immigrants sort of in the late 19th and, and early 20th century. So definitely recommend all of those. Yeah, I love those recommendations. They're specific and you got a housing one in there. Got to have one. Yeah, you, you really met quite a challenge there, right? I mean, every, everybody knows something about New York. Just one London connection there that, that came to mind is thinking about the fact that dogs being off leash is like a treat or something different, you know, like you go to the park in London and there are no leashes and everybody has a dog and they're just running around yeah. being pretty well behaved. And you wonder why. I was going to say they're probably better behaved than the dogs in this country, what happened, right? What happened the, to American the dogs, dogs in New York. So, <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So to kick this off, this is about universal access to counsel or right to counsel, as it is sometimes known. That's kind of the phrase that I was familiar with. It's a program that guarantees legal representation to people facing eviction with the hope that it would reduce the number of people being evicted. Why do advocates, just to, to get us started here, why do advocates believe that this is an important channel for reducing evictions? What's happening in places that don't provide universal access to counsel that these kinds of programs are trying to address? What are they trying to solve here? Yeah, well, I mean, the big issue that they're trying to solve is basically tenants are just not represented in, in housing court in places where there isn't right to counsel. So mm -hmm. in um, just to give you an example, in New York City, as recently as 2013, just 1% of tenants in housing court were represented by a lawyer as compared to, you know, over 90% of landlords. And so a big part of the push is to sort of to redress that imbalance. And, mm -hmm. and, um, and, and, you know, and, and, and why is that important? I mean, I don't know whether you've spent time in, in housing court, but housing court is a, 
it's a complicated place, right? It's a confusing place. There's poor signage. There are lots of different courtrooms. You're not sure. Like there's stories of, of tenants spending all day in housing court, but they never understood that they were supposed to sign in. And so they, they were there all day, but then they get a default judgment against them for, for not having showed up. So, so I think, you know, the hope and, and the strong belief on the part of advocates of access to counsel that lawyers will help tenants navigate that process, that sort of Byzantine mm. process will help them challenge different procedural problems, raise counterclaims, and, and, and ultimately, you know, more successfully represent the tenant in, in negotiations with landlords and landlord attorneys. Yeah, it does seem like it's, it's just, I mean, all aspects of law seem just very esoteric. And like, if you, if you mm. haven't studied it yourself to try to work your way through that. And and I think something you bring up in your paper as well is that housing courts are just so overburdened. And so yeah. judges aren't going to give you the time to kind of figure it out on your own. No. If you're not fully prepared and you don't know exactly what you're doing, a single mistake and you're probably, you know, your courts, your, your case is out of there. Yeah, that's right. The volume is high. Okay. So before we get into the details of the New York right to counsel or universal access to counsel program and your research into its effects, could you tell us about some of the previous research on the effectiveness of eviction counsel? I gather that earlier research had limitations regarding selection bias, among other things, which made it hard to extrapolate the findings to a broader population or to know that universal access to counsel would be as effective as more targeted legal representation interventions, for example. Yeah. So, I, I mean, you know, certainly our earlier studies of the, the benefits of, of legal representation and, you know, most of the studies are sort of observational and, and they find that tenants with, with representation, with legal representation generally get better outcomes in court. But the problem is, is that the tenants who are more likely to win their cases may also be more likely to to secure legal representation. So you can't infer mm -hmm. from those studies that the representation itself actually caused the better outcome rather than tenants who are likely to better outcomes are more likely to be represented. So now there are, there were a handful of their, uh, of previous studies that did um, rely on sort of randomly assigned legal representation. But the issue with those studies, they were very well done to be clear. It's just that they drew on, um, some very small sample sizes and also samples that were, as you said, that sort of were, were selected and that they were they were limited to cases where attorneys believed they could win their cases. Right. Mm. And so, you know, and, and that was true for both the treatment and the control cases, but they basically excluded any cases where the lawyers were were less confident. And so it's not clear that those results of those studies are generalizable to a more a broader provision of of access to counsel, which is sort of what happened in New York. Also, let me say one more thing on this, which is that when we first started doing this study, I spoke to a bunch of lawyers, and they were like, "Well, why are you doing that study?" Like, of course, lawyers matter, and in fact, <laughs> another story is my my co-authors, two of whom were lawyers, did not like the the title of the the paper that do lawyers matter. <laughs> but, <laughs> it's a given, of course. It better, but, but yeah, exactly. But, but, but I, so I think it's important to emphasize that it's actually not obvious, not obvious to me anyway, that access to counsel will necessarily reduce eviction. So lawyers, right. Lawyers can't 
find rental relief, right? If those mm -hmm. programs and resources don't exist for their tenants, right? They have little ability to change the long run affordability of apartments and, and the many challenges that tenants face in the in the labor market and in their personal lives that make it difficult for them to pay the rent. And so it's just, you know, it, it's not immediately clear that lawyers are going to, mm -hmm. are going to solve, fully solve this problem. And so we thought anyway, so all that being said, we thought this was a topic worthy of studying. Yeah. And, and most people facing eviction or, or, you know, having an eviction filed against them have it filed because, they're in arrears, they're behind on their rent. Is that, yeah. is that not correct? In which That's case, right. exactly. you know, yeah, the giving someone a lawyer does not cases. mean they have money to pay that back rent. It just means they have yeah. representation to fight the, the, the case. But That's right. at the end of the day, you do eventually have to pay the rent. Yeah. So the question is, is this sort of prolonging the inevitable? Yeah. I mean, you yeah. know, you have the same question as sort of foreclosure prevention programs if, if you're not writing down the debt. So I, I think it's a, uh, like I said, lawyers, and, and well, I'll answer when we talk about the results, whether lawyers matter. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about the, the New York City program. There is a lot to cover here, but I think the key questions are, you know, what services does it offer? Who is eligible for those services? And how was the program rolled out sequentially in such a way that putting this all together, it let you study the impacts of right to counsel in a more, I guess, convincing way or in a way that you could maybe extrapolate a little further than previous research. So basically, how was this program structured and how did that make it more amenable to research than previous studies? So the mayor de Blasio signed the Universal Access to Council bill into law in the summer of 2017, which made New York the first city in the country to offer sort of broad legal representation to to low-income tenants in, in housing court. Um, other cities, I have to say, have since followed, right, including a lot of a lot of large cities, you know, Philadelphia, Newark, San Francisco, Denver, Baltimore, Minneapolis. But, you know, at the time, um, it was the first city that the city, that the law basically requires the city, commits the city to providing um, free legal assistance to qualified tenants. I mean, every tenant in housing court now can get um, are entitled to sort of a brief legal consultation, but tenants that earn less than two hundred percent of the of the uh, poverty line are entitled to full legal representation, which includes, you know, legal advice, preparation and filing of, of court documents, um, negotiation with landlords and their attorneys, and representation in hearings and and trials and and appeals and. Critically, and maybe we can talk a little bit more about this later, tenants must respond to an, an eviction filing in order and, and appear in court in order to actually receive representation. And so, so not all eligible tenants who receive an eviction filing are are actually receive representation. So the take up is you know is less than a hundred percent. But um, but the idea is that when tenants do respond to an eviction filing, when they show up in court then they were supposed to be connected to providers who screen them for eligibility and then are assigned are assigned a lawyer. So I think I didn't, do you want me to talk about the rollout too? Yeah. And, and let's talk about the, how it was structured as, as sort of cohorts and how it began in just a few zip codes based on, mm -hmm. as I understand it, these were places that had higher rates of, of shelter and entry for people who you know were homeless at the mm -hmm. time. Tell us about that, but it strikes me as sort of a almost designed to 
be easily researched and to study its impacts. But also, I'm sure it was yeah. just a matter of resources as well and not being able to roll this out citywide all at once. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a matter of, um, you know, it was rolled out gradually because of capacity, right? So you could imagine that if you suddenly said in Los Angeles that every single tenant in housing court is is guaranteed a lawyer, well, there might not be as many, you know, enough lawyers in housing yeah. court to, Where did the lawyers and to judges represent come from? everybody. Yeah. And so um, so the city couldn't just suddenly announce that everyone would have access. And 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 so what they did was they um, they rolled it out gradually by zip code and where they would sort of add a certain number of zip codes every year. And then the idea was by 2022, the program would be would be citywide. But it gave sort of a ramp up mm -hmm. period. And the city, um, as you said, the city sort of chose those initial zip codes basically um, on the using the criteria of number of shelter entrants and also number of number of evictions. And and so, you know, while the program was rolled out that way for capacity reasons, um, you're absolutely right that it ended up being sort of serving as sort of um, useful in, in developing an evaluation design because we can um, exploit that gradual rollout and by basically comparing changes in outcomes for eviction outcomes for tenants coming from zip codes where the universal access to counsel was rolled out early to changes in outcomes for tenants coming from similarly disadvantaged zip codes where um, universal access to counsel wouldn't be rolled out until until somewhat later. And, and there ended up being, you know, every year there's sort of mm -hmm. a new cohort. So we could kind of, we could look at that. And that, that can really help us isolate the effect of legal representation, specifically over and above all the other things that the city was doing during this time to try to prevent evictions. Yeah, there's definitely some similarities from to Los Angeles, that from, at least from what I recall. You know, I, of course, about a year ago, ran away from Los Angeles housing problems, kicking and screaming, and did, didn't really look back very often to to see what new horrors awaited our city. But as I recall, like there was a pilot being formed at some juncture to provide um, universal uh, access to to council. But again, I think based on geography, you know, some of that was also based on like council districts because there were particular council persons that were um, spearheading th that effort. Um, so I don't think they rolled it out in as comprehensive a manner or in a manner that is kind of as well suited to study as the New York case. And, you know, I just want to add also in this paper, I really found it quite impressive the way that that you and your co-authors really explained not only the the program rollout but also the the housing and legal context of, of new york kind of the history behind how we got to this place in eviction and, and housing court provision um so really a model i think for how you you know situate a study and not just kind of describe like what the who the cohorts are and, and that sort of thing in kind of a basic social science way but also like yeah we know new york is a little different than probably where you are but here's what the context is and then it kind of i think makes it a lot easier for people to to connect what this study does to to their setting. Well, I appreciate that. I, I certainly, I highly recommend having lawyers as co-authors right. who, <laughs> who help with that institutional knowledge. Um, 
you know, and uh, it, which can be really important, that institutional detail. So lawyers Look, do matter. Lawyers <laughs> do matter. Exactly. Lawyers matter for social science at, at a minimum. The other thing, I just want to underscore something that you said, Mike, though, because, I, I, you know, I think, I mean, yes, the program was rolled out slowly because of capacity reasons, but you're right that it didn't necessarily have to be rolled out in such a systematic way. So I think in many cases, demonstration programs start this way. And, and you know, it really would be fantastic if local governments, state governments, federal government could really think about um, even, you know, nonprofit providers think about sort of mm -hmm. when capacity is naturally limited, thinking about rolling those programs out in ways that that make it easier to evaluate. And so you have a good comparison group. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the results. You were interested in whether the program resulted in more tenants receiving legal representation in their eviction proceedings, which would be a good sign that it's reaching its intended audience. But ultimately, this is about stopping evictions. And if it increased legal representation but didn't reduce evictions, that'd be you know a lot of money spent and maybe not a whole lot to show for it. So what did you actually find on both of those metrics of representation and you know, a change in executed evictions? Yeah, so the first question that we, we examined was take up. And as noted, right, just, just because you offer legal assistance, it doesn't mean that people will, will take it up, right? And that's true of any kind of social programs, right? Just because you offer it doesn't mean that, tenants, that people are going to take it up, right? Access can be complicated. In the case of, of legal representation, tenants actually, again, have to actually respond to the eviction notices and, and show up in court in order to be um, represented. And the majority of tenants, uh, at least in New York City, don't do that, um, don't show up. And I do think maybe it sounds like, why, why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you yeah. get you know, this free representation? But I'm sure there's partly just education, people not being aware that this is an option, yeah. but also people feeling like, well, Maybe there's some selection bias going on here, too, where people are like, well, I, I know I'm three months behind on rent. Like, what's a lawyer going to do yeah. about that? And so this idea that many people are not taking it up, I think, is not yeah. it's not that surprising, yeah. um, even though it might sound that way. That's right. But but I think, again, maybe we can talk about it a little bit more that there may be sort of I, I think that's one of the things we should be thinking about as more and more cities kind of start Seem, seem to be adopting access to counsel programs to think about implementing them in ways that it encourages take up and encourages. And even if they don't, mm -hmm. I mean, just how, how, what can we do to encourage tenants to, to come to court? Right. So we, we did find that the program increased legal representation. And we found that by um, 2019, nearly 30% of tenants with eviction cases were represented in, in the zip codes where the universal access to counsel was rolled out early on, up from less than 5%. So it went from less than 5% to about 30%, uh, less than 5% in 2015, sorry, to like 30% in mm -hmm. 2019. And, and represent, representation increased citywide at that point too, but only from about 5% to about 10%. So the increase was significantly larger. So, you know, while the program didn't reach everybody, and it also reached some people who weren't in in the targeted zip codes. It clearly succeeded in providing increased legal representation. And, uh, and, and I should say also the second, I mean, you mentioned two outcomes, but we also looked at the share, again, the share of tenants coming to court to actually respond to eviction filings. And we found that mm -hmm. that went up too, from like 20% to a little about 40%, but it, it actually turned out it went up citywide. 
um, which is kind of interesting. It didn't actually go up much more in the zip codes where UAC was was rolled out. And, you know, perhaps because sort of publicity about the, um, and I'm sorry, I'm saying UAC, I mean, Universal Access to Council, that's the acronym that it's often used that um, that publicity about the availability of legal representations, you know, spilled out to other zip codes, and and then you know, but ultimately, what we what we really the key question is whether increased representation led to better outcomes in in housing court and and reduced the percentage of filings that result in an actual evictions, and there, I mean, you know, we were somewhat hampered in in that we. Um, in our time frame, we could, you know, it, it just takes a while for cases to, to make their way through court. And then um, the COVID pandemic hit New York City, you know, New York State mm-hmm. sort of radically expanded, basically strengthened the rent regulation laws. And so we really can only look at the um, early cohorts and look at sort of nine month impact. But we did find that even in that very short term time period that um, the uh, we saw that the ex- were an execution rate or the share of eviction filings that resulted in an actual eviction fell significantly more in the zip codes where um, universal access to counsel was was rolled out and and it was we sort of said the the uh, the, decl- the relative decline was about 1.6 percentage points which sounds small but on the other hand only like eight to ten percent of eviction filings in New York actually result in, in executed eviction. So it's not insignificant. And that happened at the same time as executed evictions. The rate of executed evictions was going up in non yes, zip codes. That's that, right. right. And yeah, that's right. It's sort of so the relative difference was this 1.6 percentage points. I mean, mm-hmm. we basically did just sort Got of it. benchmark the decline. We, you know, we we came up with the back of the envelope estimate that if you assumed that decline citywide and you assume sort of the level of the volume of eviction filings that occurred in 2019 that you would see 2000 fewer evictions citywide in each year. So, you know, that's not that's not insignificant. I'm sorry, I forget. Did you look at the impact on eviction filings as well in the UAC versus non-UAC zip codes and I ask that just because it seems like Maybe this would take some time to really settle in, but you could imagine how if landlords know that tenants are going to have legal representation or at least the, the, the right to it, that they might file fewer evictions, you know, especially kind of more frivolous or dubious ones. Yeah, that's a really good question. We did look at that. We didn't ultimately put it in the paper. We saw some, um, you know, sort of suggestive evidence of, of, of a relative decline in, in filings, but we thought that Theoretically, that probably would take a while for landlords to sort of learn about the program, see how it was actually going to play out. And so we didn't have great Mm -hmm. theoretical reasons for thinking that at least in the short run that you would see kind of a behavioral response right away on on filings. And so we decided to um, leave that out of the paper and focus on the the outcomes for which we thought we would see a, um, a more direct impact. Yeah, that makes sense. I just know that I've heard that as an argument, and it does, you know, it does make logical yeah, sense. Yeah, no, it does make that, it does um, make sense. There are certainly certainly landlords who file frivolous claims, or because they know that most tenants are not going to fight back, and maybe they're not even expecting to have to execute the warrant or go through the courts. Maybe just the filing the, mm-hmm. the eviction notice will be enough for some to leave, and you could imagine how 
again, if, if they have legal representation, that, that might be a little scarier of a, (laughs) of a thing to do on the part of the landlord. Yeah. Over the longer run. I mean, I think that's absolutely true. We've done a few episodes now that talk about evictions, most recently with Eva Rosen and Philip Garboden. And the running theme in all of them is that the eviction process is very messy and the data on evictions are often incomplete or they're hard to track down. And and as we kind of talked about already, every city, every county seems to have its own process for all of this and its own rules. This study, as Mike said, was designed really well, but there are always limitations. So what were they in this case? Yeah. So um, there are definitely limitations. I, I think we have pretty good data, but there are uh, there are definitely limitations. And, and I'd say that, let me frame this in terms of like, if we really wanted to answer the question of whether um, this program is a good investment, you want to do kind of a full cost benefit analysis. And so, you know, what on the benefit side, it's important to emphasize that we're really only looking at one outcome, which is um, executed evictions, right? But but lawyers could help tenants in other ways, right? They could reduce the amount of debt that they have to pay back. They could negotiate, you know, rent abatements for poor housing conditions. So there, there's sort of other other benefits that lawyers could provide. And Similarly, you need to think about the cost side. Um, you know, how much do all these lawyers cost? And um, yeah, and, and, and in the end, on both the cost and the benefit side, again, we really only can look at sort of the very, what we are able to look at in this paper is sort of very short run impact. So we may not be able to see sort of, you know, longer term benefits, whether those are smaller or larger. We also, I think it's also important to study whether over the longer term, whether universal access to counsel can actually might might actually discourage landlords from providing rental housing altogether. I mean, critics of universal access to counsel basically argue that tenant representation is simply going to prolong the eviction process. It's going to um, ultimately that making eviction mm-hmm. more costly means making providing rental housing more expensive. And so therefore you could you could imagine fewer rental units and, and higher rents. And so, you know, these kinds of universal access to council could could theoretically increase rents across the board, which, you know, you I think to to really answer to do a full program evaluation, you would want to do that. And 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 then finally, of course, there's the issue of generalizability. I mean you kind of you both sort of mentioned this, right? This is this is New York City, right? This is a city that probably has a more tenant-friendly housing court than a lot of cities across the country. And, you know, I mean, I'm not sure which way that goes, but which way that cuts. I mean, it could mean that lawyers make less difference because actually tenants do pretty well in housing court anyway, mm, you know? Yeah. Or it could mean that lawyers make more difference because they there are more rights to protect, Right. So in places where yeah, the tenants yeah. have no rights, then what what claims does a does a lawyer have to have to assert? And it's just a matter of knowing how to make the correct claim, which a tenant is very unlikely That's to right. be able to do without some kind of That's representation. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think you know, one thing that you brought up there, Ingrid, you know, I think is really interesting, you know, in that essentially this issue of costs to you know, to the landlord and, you know, how that affects uh, rents, you know, or there's a lot of people who think that landlords matter too, right? And they're not, anybody who's been a renter tends not to think too fondly of landlords and, you know, generally people who, I think landlords are often, you know, pretty unpopular in housing discussions, but 
you know, there's a lot of people that I'm sure are rightfully concerned about the increased cost to landlords. If, if there's always an expectation that everybody has to have a lawyer, I think in, in Los Angeles, usually something like 90% of unlawful detainer cases, the landlord is represented. So they're already usually coming with lawyers, at least in, in LA, but these costs are incurred to the landlord, whether or not the tenant shows up, they still have to, they're still going to have a lawyer, they're going to pay for that. And then if the other side, the tenant side has a lawyer, which, you know, I think is leveling the play, playing field, of course, like it may result in, you know, more trials or more um, longer disputes that require more and more costs. And, you know, again, if you don't care that much about landlords, I, I understand that, but somebody has to kind of pay for that in some sort of way. And that may end up being a future tenant of a landlord who knows that they need to have um, representation every time they go to court. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not even sure. I mean, (laughs) I don't even know that you have to necessarily, for, for the listeners out there that don't care about landlords, I still think you should care about this issue, right? Because again, and actually Boaz Abramson, who's a, um, he just, got his PhD from Stanford in economics and he's going to be, he's, he's now an assistant professor at Columbia business school. And he has written an, a really important working paper. He, he basically develops a, he develops a model of eviction and, and he focuses on San Diego where there's basically there, there was a, a sort of a pilot legal representation program that, um, and resulted in, that represented tenants were in court for longer and they had to pay less uh, back less of their rental arrears. And he found that right to counsel policy increases landlord costs so much and, and rents across the board rents so much that it ultimately resulted in more rental defaults and, and higher rates of homelessness. And that, wow. and I, and I think we need, we need more research on this, but I think the paper provides a really important cautionary note about sort of the risks of access to counsel and policies that make evictions much more costly. And, and I should say the other thing that he, he doesn't focus on so much, you also have to worry about what landlords are going to do at the front end, right, if they can't evict people at the back end. So what kind of additional screening Mm. and selection criteria are landlords going to use? And so could this reduce access to housing for rental applicants who who appear to be risky to landlords? Um, Could this, you know, and in that way, could this kind of facilitate some discrimination? So I think all of these things are things that down the road, we, we really need to study more fully to understand the full effects. Absolutely. Yeah. And what you just brought up about the screening, that was really a focus of our conversation with Eva Mm. and Philip in particular. So your analysis ends with data from 2019, but we're now three years later. Has there been any follow-up even, you know, informally to see if the impacts have held up over time or maybe even strengthened uh, as more landlords and tenants have familiarized themselves with the program? I do imagine that COVID and the eviction moratorium kind of threw a wrench in, in any plans you might have had for a follow-up study, if that was your intention. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, with the COVID um, pandemic and, that, and the um, moratorium on evictions, it, it's, it's been an unusual, it's such an unusual period that I'm not sure we can 
learn that much from it. I will say that, I mean, um, apparently tenant representation, uh, legal representation among tenants has, has gone way up uh, over time. I mean, it's, it's now um, a majority of tenants in, in housing court in New York are now represented. Again, this is an unusual time. There are unusual set of tenants that are in the housing court, but still, that's important. I will say that Mike Cassidy and, and Janet Curry have uh, written a really terrific sort of follow-up working paper that, um, and, and they look at a, a somewhat broader, they, you know, they look at a somewhat longer time period than we do, but they, again, they're sort of stymied by, by COVID, but they look at a somewhat broader set of outcomes and they show that tenants, not only are they less likely that represented tenants are not only less likely to be evicted, but they also face smaller monetary damages in housing mm-hmm. court. And that was something we didn't look at. So um, that, and they also observe significant heterogeneity across zip codes and, and find that that lawyers seem to have greater impacts in poorer places and poorer zip codes and those with larger shares of, of non-citizens, which which I think is important and suggests maybe some some targeting as cities across the country, you know, other cities think about providing free legal assistance that maybe they should think about targeting it if they don't feel that they have the resources to serve everybody or feel like they're concerned about what the costs would be in terms of the rental housing stock altogether. Has there been any thinking or, or proposals about targeting? Because, you know, I think about this in terms of like, what's a good analogy? Here in Los Angeles, I think there have been some efforts to, you know, using big data or other means, try to proactively identify people who are at risk of homelessness. And it sounds like a great idea. If we can figure it out, that would be wonderful. It's it's apparently very, very difficult. But, you know, you can understand why they would want to do that, because if if the answer is, well, we're just going to give money to anyone who might be at risk, that's going to be very costly. And we know that most people who at any given moment are at risk of homelessness do not become homeless, you know, in the near term. And so in that sense, the money is sort of, I don't know if I would say wasted, but might have been put to better use. And it seems like the same could be said here, where maybe more targeted assistance to people we're more sure that really need the help or will benefit from it could go a lot further if we, you know, if we don't have unlimited money to spend, which presumably none of us do. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, everything you said, I agree with, right? It's just, yes, theoretically, we would want to target this assistance to the people who are most likely to benefit from it. You know, I, I think that is, that's difficult to do, right? Mm-hmm. It's difficult to identify those tenants. There's a lot of unobserved factors that you really can't see in terms of who has, you know, family that they can rely on and turn to. And, um, and there's, I mean, I, I think that most of the programs that I know about are are limited to low income tenants. So that's been really the the targeting that's been that's been done. Um, you know, I, I think that there's there's now something of a some there's now some advocates are calling for um, a broadening of representation to um, to make the program truly universal. But you know, I think again, if you believe the Janet Curry and the my Cassidy results, I, I'm not sure that necessarily would be wise right now that maybe we should, um, you know, focus more on the on the lower income tenants who really can can use the assistance more. Mm-hmm. I didn't ask how much this program has been costing thus far. And also, if you could tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about the other 
programs and services that were rolled out around the same time, because I think it's I think it maybe helps explain part of why representation also increased outside of the UAC zip codes and maybe is, you know, something of a confounding variable here where, you know, not all of the impacts that you've seen are necessarily the result of the UAC, but but maybe other things that are going on in New York around the same time. So the cost estimates are about, I mean, a little over sort of $3,000 per represented tenant, I think, is is the, the most recent estimates I've seen. That's That sounds like a lot to me. Yeah, I don't know whether that sounds like a lot or a little. I mean, you know, if you compare that against what, you know, you think that sort of the, you know, the the work of Rob Collins and Dan Reed, Winnie Van Dyke and others showing, you know, some really significant social costs of eviction that you could mm-hmm. argue actually that's, that, that, that's not so large. Well, I guess it's not so much that it's a, a ton of money per tenant. I guess it's like, I'm thinking about how much rent yeah. are tenants behind when they go no, to eviction right. court. And is it more than three thousand dollars on average? I I don't I don't know the answer to that, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was less. Yeah, yeah. yeah. in New York, yeah, that's yeah, only right. a month, most places, and a half. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but it, look, it's 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 a good. It's not in it's not insignificant, right? You know, I think that uh, in terms of your other, and clearly we need to. The key is like we need to balance any benefits that we find against those against those costs and. And the full, like I said, any any costs in terms of on the on the rental market as a whole. I think that in terms of other things that were going on in New York, I mean, there was a big push on. Um, there was some adoption of some anti-tenant harassment policies in the mm-hmm. city. There had been some earlier versions of of an, an earlier increase in resources to to represent tenants across the city and in. There also was in in the middle of 2019. I think I mentioned this a significant strengthening of the of the rent regulation law in New York City, which which made it um, more difficult to to evict tenants and and also arguably reduced the minimized the reduced the incentive that landlords had to evict tenants because they no longer could get a, a um, charge more rent mm. to sort of the next tenant that came in there was no the, the vacancy bonus was was eliminated right so there were there were a lot of things going on i, I wanted to highlight one one other thing and that this is my last query of any kind i think and that's kind of the geography of of housing courts you know in in la we've changed this quite a lot in the last i think decade a couple times you know we first shrunk the number of housing courts we had kind of just around the county. That's a huge county, obviously. We went down to five eviction court hubs at one point, and then we expanded to 11. And a doctor, a now graduated uh, doctoral student, uh, Kyle Nelson at UCLA, found you know kind of an interesting thing that this is like a trade-off in a way between kind of physical access to a court and procedural justice because when you increase the number of courts, it makes it harder for the nonprofit legal community to kind of serve everybody in a small number of locations, right? Because they can't have offices everywhere. And I don't know, you know, whether, you know, so that to me, I think is another policy mechanism in which you 
kind of shape how people are going to access the court, whether they're going to show up, whether they're going to be supported by a lawyer. Um, and I just don't you know, recall exactly what that looks like in New York. Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, they're basically in New York, there is a, uh, there's, there's one housing court house per borough or per county. Yeah, um, that's what I picture. Yeah, yeah, you know, plus uh, they're, they're sort of community courts as well, but um, but most housing court cases go, mm-hmm. have to go through the main housing courts in their in their borough. And and that, you know, those I mean, New York is different than in LA and that there's there's better public transportation and but it still can be that some people live very far away from those housing courts and there's actually right. one really nice study in, uh, that looks at default rates in Philadelphia. And that's, again, the, the default rates are the, the cases where tenants don't show up and respond to an eviction filing. And they find that tenants are more likely to default or less likely to show up in court when their travel time to the courthouse on public transit is longer, right? And so right. that's pretty pretty significant. And, and you're right, there could be some trade-offs, though, that if we... If we suddenly, whatever, double or triple the number of courts, you might have to worry about what kind of challenge that means for legal service providers to get to those courts. But also, you might worry about inconsistency in treatment across those courts, right? But potentially, so that could be also. So I think yeah. it's a it's a really it's a really interesting policy question. But I but I do think we need to think hard about access to these courts and make sure um, that tenants can get to the courts if they're given multiple options of dates where they can come to the courts. And, uh, and right. it's, it's, it's something definitely to think about as you design these programs. So it sounds like we're pretty certain that for the purposes of writing a research paper about eviction, <laughs> lawyers matter. Definitely they matter. Seemingly, they even matter for reducing evictions by providing legal representation. From what you've learned about this so far, you know, studying this over the years, where would you like to see the program go in the coming years? Yeah, so um, like I said, I mean, I, I think that we, um, I, I would like to learn more about who are the tenants who are not showing up in court mm-hmm. and and why yes. are they not showing up in court and how can we make it easier for them and communicate to them that um, they can get help if they show up in court, that they're not going to get help if they don't show up in court. So I I think that's something uh, to think hard about. I think this question about targeting is important and uh, think about whether there are ways for us to target. I mean, again, I mean, right now, New York, because of staffing shortages and sort of now the increase in evictions after the moratorium, there are really staffing challenges and people in how even eligible tenants in housing court aren't getting access to, to lawyers mm-hmm. immediately. So I certainly wouldn't expand the program right now. I think we do need to learn more about it. And then I would say also, I, I think it's important that yes, you know, the answer is that lawyers matter, but I think it's also important to contextualize to say that lawyers can't do everything. No. Yeah. Um, they can't, they can't make tenants show up in court. They can't address the financial crises and, and, and other crises that, that lead tenants to housing court. They can't find resources for tenants that, that don't exist. They can't, you know, ultimately they can't address the structural problems in the housing market. 
that um, and most notably the, the lack of supply, which, you know, Mike has studied a lot that make housing so expensive and, and put so many families at risk in the first place and or, or prevent them from even getting into their own homes. And so I, I think it's important to put that this study in that context. Yeah, I, you know, I said I was not going to say anything else mm-hmm. there, but I, that really makes me think of, you know, another piece of this or another way to kind of think about the no-show issue with tenants, you know, not showing up to court. I think it's important to impress that, and I'm borrowing again from Kyle Nelson's work, in which he basically discusses and frames that a lot of tenants that are facing an eviction have, you know, some kind of what he calls housing trouble that they've been experiencing their whole lives, maybe, and certain, you know, probably their whole adult lives, or maybe the last five years, 10 years, whatever. Like housing trouble is a daily fact, weekly fact, monthly fact for them. And so, you know, if I can speak for myself, who has not had anything like housing trouble for at least my like post-college years, probably, or maybe postgraduate school years, it's hard for people like me to, I think, put yourself in their shoes, right? Where like housing trouble is an everyday thing. They get this notice from their landlord or they get some threat or they get this eviction notice. And to some of us, that would be like this cataclysmic day, right? Just like you've never thought about any, you wouldn't think about anything else. Like, how am I going to deal with this? I need to go to court, whatever. People in this situation often have been dealing with so much around this landlord, around this unit, around this neighborhood, whatever, that it's just more noise. Um, and so I'd say that to certainly echo and, and, and second, you know, this idea that we really need to study more about that and how we can, there's this bigger context of housing trouble that we can't, oh, we, we need a bunch of other things in, in place to solve, but there's this smaller issue of representation that we also don't really know a lot about. We have some theories, but like, we don't do a great job of studying people who don't show up, right? That's just kind of, yeah. you know, part of social science. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And I will say sort of on the, on sort of what else do we need? I mean, I think that having a standing emergency rental assistance program um, mm. that um, would be near the top of my list. I think we have really good research that shows that those kind of short-term emergency resources can really make a difference in, in stabilizing families and helping them avoid eviction and ultimately homelessness. And I think there must be complementarity, right, in, in, in terms of sort of how much of a difference can lawyers make if they, when they represent tenants, they can connect them to these emergency resources. So I think that would, that would be high on my list. Yeah, we still need to know if lawyers matter more than other things, X, Y, and Z, different interventions we could be doing. (laughs) Well, Ingrid Gould Ellen, thank you so much for joining the Housing Voice podcast today. Thank you for having me. You can read more about Ingrid's research on our website, lewis.ucla.edu, and you can find show notes and a transcript of the interview there too. The UCLA Lewis Center is on Facebook and Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips, and Mike is there at MC underscore Lens. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.